Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'm joined by author and professional, though lapsed, ventriloquist John Paget. His first short story collection, The Secret of Ventriloquism, was named the Best Fiction Book of 2016 by Rue Morgue Magazine. He lives here in New Orleans as well. How's it going today, John? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Glad to get you in. You've done some some readings for us before, yeah, but yeah. never a, a one-on-one interview. Right, right. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, and to kind of get us started, uh, a lot of people would maybe consider your work in the realm of like weird fiction or existential horror. And I know sometimes genres or parameters placed upon a person's work can be a little bit of a reduction. So I'm wondering what you would consider your work or how you would describe it. Yeah, that's that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I have always had a bend towards the macabre ever since I was a kid. And, you know, I, I would I would say that my fiction is is pretty weird and uh, what would be called a particular type of horror fiction. Sure. I didn't really come at writing from that direction. Yeah. Um, but it turned out that way. Okay. That's not uh, a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, what, what direction did you come from writing? Well, initially, when I was a child and in high school, I, like a, a lot of boys my age during that time, was very taken by um, Tolkien's The Hobbit and, and The Lord of the Rings. And um, I started reading lots of fantasy when I was a kid. And I, I got interested in, in writing along that vein. But I, I tried all sorts of things, you know. I remember being the first major work from my childhood, if you'd call it that, was a uh, a poem uh, to my mother, I think probably for Mother's Day. Yeah. And uh, no one believed that I had actually written it, that it was mine, and they thought <laughs> I had copied it. But, uh, and, and that... Um, impulse towards poetry uh, continued uh, on and off, and I wrote a lot of bad poetry. <laughs> As tends to happen. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I wrote a lot of abortive stories as well. But as a high schooler, I started, well, like I said, I'd always been interested in uh, the macabre, um, chiefly because I had an older brother who used to tell me stories before I went to bed uh, with the intent to scare me. <laughs> and he was very good at it. And uh, that really changed my uh, the bent of my imagination. And uh, I had lots of nightmares growing up and recurring nightmares as well. Okay. Uh, night terrors. So I, I became very familiarized with horror <laughs> from kind of a oneric, you know, dreamscape sense. I get that. Now, as someone who has also dealt with, with night terrors at a certain point in my life, I understand how uh, visceral that can be and affecting. Um, when did that switch kind of come from dealing with those things on like a very personal and like an almost traumatic level to being like a more of intellectual pursuit? Mm. Another good question. Well, I, you know, I would say, uh, I mean, as as I mentioned before, you know, I was always drawn uh, to 
uh, darker uh, literary fiction. Uh, I, you know, started reading Poe at a at a very early age, and of course, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, Stephen King was kind of at his horror height. Yeah. So I was uh, I was very into to uh, horror novels in the eighties, and then I again, <laughs> many uh, teenage boys uh, of of that certain bent uh, came into contact with the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and that um, that really had a, a profound effect on uh, my reading life. Uh, eventually, though, I, I started, you know, I, ever since I was a kid, I was a big reader. My, my older sister uh, got me into to reading, um, in fact, by, by reading me The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings <laughs> when I was six and seven years old, respectively. And, and I kind of never looked back from that. And, uh, you know, I've got a, I've got a theater background. Uh, I've got my bachelor's degree in, in theater arts. Uh, which of course is is very connected with with a literary work, and I didn't intend to, but I, I went on to get my master's degree in English literature, and, and so my the scope of my reading broadened as uh, I started getting older, and at the same time that this was happening, I came into contact with the work of Thomas Ligotti. And, and that's when I would say, you know, paradoxically, in one sense, my reading life went from the personal to the more intellectual or a- academic. Um, but at the same time, the, the work of Ligotti affected me on a personal level like I've never been affected by any other fiction uh, before or since. And... And that's when I realized that I really wanted and needed to communicate via literature um, and, and to really try my hand at uh, writing in this mode myself. This, yeah. this kind of highly intimate and imaginative mode of, of writing that, that I never knew was possible, but a lot of what I read in Ligotti's work really uh, I felt reflected in my own kind of deepest and darkest thoughts yeah. about the nature of reality. And so from there, I uh, I started writing. Uh, I was in my mid twenties. Like I said, I had been writing on and off for years, but not uh, seriously. Yeah. And I ended up writing a, um, a a story that at the time I thought was just absolutely brilliant, <laughs> like a lot of young writers. Uh, I, I had a very high estimation of of my own work, and I was buoyed by what others in my life had, had said about it. And this this story uh, was something that I didn't know at the time, but that I would end up wrestling with for a good 20 years. It was, I was to discover a few years later, not brilliant, but rather uh, just a miserable 
uh, a work of not, not, I can't even call it fiction at the time because it was, I didn't know how to write. Yeah. And I didn't know that I didn't know how to write. Uh, I, I, I had, I jumped in uh, on the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. before even, you know, trying to hone my craft or, or learning from anybody who, uh, who knew the craft. Yeah. And I simply didn't know any better. And ironically, it wasn't until several years later that uh, I got in contact with Thomas Ligotti and started communicating with him that, that I was to learn. First, that the story uh, was bad, <laughs> essentially, in so many <laughs> words. And second, um, that I didn't know how to write yet. Yeah. And over the course of many years, I, I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote that story um, with the, the help and direction and critique of, of Ligotti himself uh, and really learned how to write over those years. And uh, the story that ended up being created was 20 Simple Steps to Ventriloquism. Yes. And uh, and that was also the first uh, story that I that I got published, and from there, uh, even though it had only ever been my goal to write one decent story, I uh, I discovered that I had more to say. Yeah, no, I could see that, and that yeah, that's uh, it's one of my favorite stories of yours, and in this collection, the secret of ventriloquism, which kind of forms the heart of the book and uh, connects to a lot of the other stories in a lot of interesting ways. Um, when working with Ligotti and trying to figure out like the craft of writing, were there any like aha moments for you of like, oh, this makes so much. Uh, since this is something that I should be doing, not so much in like the story itself, but of like, oh, this is how the form works. Or, or was there like a certain connective thing that really helped you along? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I, I, and I should say that with each consecutive uh, rewrite that I, that I made of this story, I learned, I learned so much from, from getting feedback back from, from Tom. Yeah. And I, I can recall in the early 2000s, being on the phone with him, and we were talking about uh, the story. I that uh, I, I had I had come up with the title, "The Secret of Ventriloquism," um, in part because my spouse Carolyn Hembury, who is a poet, she was in graduate school at the time, and uh, one of her professors uh, was a um, uh, a poet named John Anderson, who wrote a wonderful poem called uh, "The Secret of Poetry." Ah. So I was like, ding, ding. You know. <laughs> and uh, Tom Ligotti had already told me, you know, the, the thing that you need to really focus on, it seems to me, is what you know about that not many other people know about. And from the very first draft of this, of this story, which was terrible, as I've said, in the, the early to mid-90s, ventriloquism was always, was always in there. Yeah. there. There was a ventriloquist dummy figure that was much more, you know, conventionally spooky. So I, I, I took that note and, uh, you know, I, and I had that, that title that I was very proud of. And uh, I remember being on the phone with Tom and him saying, well, what is the secret of ventriloquism? I didn't know. Yeah. 
uh, you know, and, and, and I should back up and say, as you mentioned in the intro, from the time that I was about nine years old, I was a ventriloquist. I, I was scared of ventriloquist dummies. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and had to know how they worked. So I went from there and, uh, you know, by the time I was 15, I had my own professional ventriloquist dummy and was and had been performing kids' birthday parties, uh, variety acts around town, that wow. sort of thing. And, uh, and, and really, I guess, uh, you know, over time, I, I realized at some point I had subconsciously, I think I, I thought back on, on this old movie I had seen when I was a kid in the 70s. It was called The Medusa Touch, hmm. starring Richard Burton and Lee Remick. I, I recently rewatched it um, and and was and was stunned at how effective uh, the the movie was. It had a scene that was chillingly chillingly put me in mind of of nine eleven and the airliners running into the the building. There was a scene in which that actually happened. Oh wow. Um, and that combined with this this character's kind of descent into madness and at the same time growing in this this kind of supernatural power yeah. of being able to make things happen, uh, terrible things. It all kind of gelled for me in about 2004. And I, you know, I had been thinking about for, for some years, I'd been thinking about you know what is the secret of ventriloquism, and and uh, and decided, okay, I'm going to, I've, I know that I want to to write about, but I don't know the angle I want to write back to it. So I went back to basics, and and when I was a child and got my first ventriloquist dummy, it came with a two or three page pamphlet called Seven Simple Steps to Ventriloquism, <laughs> and I started thinking, okay. What if there are more steps that we're not seeing? What if the writer of this really went far, far beyond what the ventriloquist dummy company wanted him to do yeah. and, and really delve deep into it? And, and it got increasingly metaphysical and the writer started really kind of losing their minds. So that's where I went at it. And then um, I sent the outline to, to Ligotti and bear in mind for... The better part of a decade, he had he had told me every draft, you know, it's not ready. You're not ready. This isn't right. This isn't right. He got that outline. He said, you know, this could be a great story. Wow. And so then I knew the direction I wanted to take. And then for the next five years or so, I had to actually learn how to write yeah. on the sentence level and put a real horror story together. Yeah, and you see that in the work itself and how you um, every sentence is put together with such care, but not in a way that takes away the organic quality of it. But it, it's, 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 it's put together like structurally like a joke in a lot of ways yeah. uh, with the callbacks coming back in that have all these divergent meanings after the fact. I think it's really a beautifully written story. Oh, thank you. And utterly terrifying as well, <laughs> uh, which is which is great. And um, tell me about your obviously work as an actor. Um, and in performance, that kind of bleeds into your writing a lot. Uh, what's your kind of relationship with that? And as far as like, have any strategies developed in your writing life based off of like your character work before? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, ever since I was 
from the ages of about seven to 22, I was constantly on stage in something. Yeah. You know, I, I got the theater bug and got it bad. And, and that's where I always felt like my major talent lay uh, with acting on stage. So, yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that there's a performative element that comes into play and especially in the stories and pieces in The Secret of Ventriloquism, the collection. And, uh, you know, so much so that, you know, one of the pieces the, is kind of a titular um, short one-act play that kind of fills in a lot of the gaps that the story 20 Simple Steps to Ventriloquism had, mm. partially because I had to... In order to get it published for the first time, I had to pare it down from about 15,000 words to, to 4,500 words. Yeah. So I had to strip out characters, I had to strip out plot, and just get the bare essentials down. Yeah. But I still wanted to tell that story. So, and that's why, you know, that's how, that's how the collection really came, came to be. And, and, and all the things that you, you mentioned with the interweaving of, and callbacks in 20 Simple Steps to Ventriloquism, I kind of organically started using in those stories within that book itself. Yeah. Initially, I, I kind of cringed away from the idea of, of so much repetition. But if there's one thing that, that I've learned over the years, it's especially if you're trying to, to create tension or even build a world maybe not explicitly, but on a kind of a dream logic level, repetition is is the key to that. Yeah. No, I can see that. It's, it's also interesting playing with those forms, too. Talking about uh, writing bad poetry. Sure. Uh, I, I, I write plenty of bad poetry myself, <laughs> or I have in the past, but I, I still read a lot of poetry and a lot yeah. of poetry coming uh, out right now, including from Carolyn. Um, oh, yeah. The experimental forms that people are working with, even if you're not writing in a poetic vein, they're really useful in fiction and both nonfiction for how you structure and lay out a story. Absolutely. Uh, and you can see that right there, uh, taking taking that and being a little bit more on the edge of things, um, which is Thank cool. Um, to kind of move to a, to a different topic, sure. uh, I know you're starting a new journal, uh, Vestarian. Uh, Vestarian. Vestarian, yes. excuse yes. me. Uh, Vestarian, a, a literary journal, yeah. Uh, the first issue came out, I guess, uh, in April. Oh, wow. Or, or, or maybe it was March. I don't remember now. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a whirlwind. And, it's uh, out. That's what matters. Uh, yes, yes. And it's it's long been planned. Uh, and uh, we had a, a very successful Kickstarter. I think we made four times the amount we needed to and wow. were able to uh, pay pro rates yeah. um, for it. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great blend of, of uh, nonfiction, fiction, poetry, art, and, and hybrid pieces that are kind of combinations of all of those. I'm very uh, gratified and, and excited about it. And um, the, the second issue should be coming out, hopefully... By the time this airs, it will be out. Okay. Oh, um, and yeah, it's 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 my first real foray into this kind of editing, and I, I have a a great co-editor in chief, uh, Matt Carden, who is a, a wonderful thinker and writer, who I've known for over two decades now, and Dagny Paul, uh, who is a wonderful writer in town. 
as well as she's been one of the editors for Pseudopod, the escape artists, kind of flagship, and has been uh, fantastic as well. But yeah, it's been quite nice, actually, you know, yeah. because, you know, about a year and a half ago, my my first collection came out and there was, and it came out from a small press. So there was a lot of kind of self-promotion involved. The publishing house did some promotion as well, but they just didn't have the the resources to, to do it. So I I really, really pounded the pavement and got got. Uh, advanced reading copies out to lots of reviewers and and uh, it, it went very very well but you know about a year into that I was really sick of myself and my own work yeah. <laughs> and and so it's so nice to, to be able to discover all of this wonderful work by by other writers and artists and present it and I think that Vasterian does does come from a certain angle that I haven't seen other journals of its type come from. So it's, you know, I think it's it's well worthwhile. I get that. What, what, what would you consider its type as far as for people that might be interested? Yeah, well, you know, for for years, uh, I, I, should, I should say that I've been, a, ever since I picked up that first uh, volume of Ligotti's work, Songs of a Dead Dreamer, I've, I've been a big not only fan, but a proponent of his work. And, uh, and I think that it's extremely important um, uh, to uh, contemporary literature in general, far beyond uh, the genre of horror or the subgenre of weird fiction, yeah. um, which, you know, Penguin Classics agrees. Um, they, <laughs> uh, a few years ago, they came out with He's one of 10 living writers who has gotten work published by them. And, and so this journal really has a Ligottian bent to it. Yeah. A lot of it is what could be considered philosophical horror, yeah. particularly the, the fiction, but also the nonfiction, the poetry, the art. It, it very much has that bent, and, and which, which sounds very specific, but actually, you know, when, when you look at Ligotti's work and all of the many authors and artists who have influenced his work or have been influenced by it, you have quite a, a nice scope. Yeah. No, I get that. That's interesting. Well, I'm happy for you that you got to get that out there. Um, and I Thank know you, you also have a, a chat book coming out sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. From Nightscape Press, um, it's a novelette um, by the name of The Broker of Nightmares. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm excited... Uh, uh, about it coming out. It's going to be fully illustrated, signed, uh, relatively limited edition, I, I believe. And uh, it's it's nice because the press has a wonderful payment system in which both they and uh, the author split the royalties with a charity of the author's choice. And oh. in my case, I chose the ACLU. Oh, cool. Uh, so I'm... I'm I'm pretty stoked about that. that that's a really <laughs> awesome thing. Um, cool. Uh, a fun question I wanted to ask you: uh, What's a trope in modern horror, both fiction, movies, that you despise, and what's one that you love? Oh, that that is a that's a really good question. You know, I don't I don't despise any of the tropes in horror. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think. I think that any of them can be used in interesting ways. Yeah. 
I mean, for instance, the the idea of, of or the the living doll trope, yeah, and, and which obviously is one that I that I really focused on. And in the beginning, back when I wrote that first story, at the time it was called The Eyes of the Master. There literally was a living doll yeah. that you know kind of turned the tables on the protagonist and. You know, very, very, very much uh, kind of a conventional storyline, something that we've seen over and over again. Yeah. But I found after, you know, these years of work and soul searching and writing and rewriting that that the dummy uh, or the puppet or the doll, the idea of of these things having consciousness is really rather pitiable. Yeah. Uh, not 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 so much scary as as pitiable and the reason why it's pitiable is because we see ourselves in those figures and we see our loved ones as well because we know we're only here for a limited period of time and that eventually our bodies are going to be as lifeless as any doll or dummy yeah um so there's there's that element i like it when these tropes are uh, used in original, unexpected, and truly probing ways. Yeah, that's that's the kind of uh, that, that's the kind of horror that I that I like. That's not to say that I can't love a well implemented, simple horror uh, plot. Yeah, but I will say that as one of the co-editors-in-chief of Vasterian, that's not what we're interested in. And that's one of the number one things that, that we see from submissions, you know, yeah. conventional horror. What we're interested in and what I'm interested in, both as a reader and a writer, is something that that goes in unexpected directions yeah. with, with, with all of those very familiar tropes. Because let's face it, you know, there are only so many out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and, and it, but if we come at them at different angles and they un unfold unexpectedly, then I think the writer's really doing a good job. Yeah, no, I think that, that's really important. And I really like what you said about um, the idea of dolls being pitiable because a lot of the times people like to position fear or the act of being scared as just this one solid emotion, but it's really more than many other emotions. I, I think such a mixture of all these different emotions coming together for that. That's the yeah. reaction thing. You know, you have that pitiable aspect, you have this alienation aspect into it. And it, it's really cool to see writers piece those individual um, intonations apart out of that emotion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the biggest influences uh on on the stories in this in this book is has to do with with mindfulness yeah and and the idea of of consciousness as a burden yeah and you know this it's it's funny because a lot of readers uh have read this and and said you know this is so bleak and, you know, terrible and uh, it's just really depressing. And I don't see it that way. Yeah. In fact, they're, uh, out of all of the, the pieces in, in my book, I, I think, I truly believe that all but one of them is, is relatively, ha have relatively happy endings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as strange as it sounds. Uh, um, 
because these these characters who who certainly suffer throughout the the course of all of these stories that are tied together most of them have a release of that burden that yeah. comes and it may be horrific to get there um and the idea of it from the outside might be horrific to some readers but to me the writing becomes kind of an exploration of our our, our own mortality yeah. and 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 what it and what it means to be uh, alive and what is the nature of our existence and our in our memories and what happens once all of that's gone yeah it, um, it's interesting you mentioned the uh on being and kind of the meditative aspects of it. I was reading a couple of interviews that you'd done before and you were talking about that that topic and the immediate yeah. thought that came to my, my mind was like, oh, it's a perversion of this idea of like a mindfulness and being. And then mm -hmm. I had to stop myself and be like, no, that's that's <laughs> too simple. That's indulging in like a duality, right? And I think what you're trying to do is a little bit more complicated to where these are contraries kind of going back and forth and in this weird kind of gray area. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I, I think, you know, I, I think I've I've been partially successful in 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 that. Um, of course, you know, any any writer kind of lets go of the whatever personal meaning they might have had while while planning or, or or writing a work i think you know once it's out in the world it belongs uh to the reader to develop any kind of of uh, personal meaning uh if any yeah. if, if it gets if it gets that far uh and i think that's a wonderful thing certainly friend and mentor thomas Ligotti wouldn't agree with a lot of my conclusions about kind of a, a optimistic turn in, in my stories. Uh, but that's, you know, we all come, we all come at this existence as readers, as human beings uh, differently. Yeah. And, you know, that's uh, one of the, the Flannery O'Connorisms of yeah. uh, surviving by grace. And a lot of her stories have those, those twisted endings, or you could call them twisted, but in her idea, it's, it's, it's a graceful irony. You Absolutely. Know? That's a, that's a great, that's a great example. Um, um, and oh, a lot of her characters on, on paper from, uh, from a limited point of view come to bad ends and you know, like, wow, you know, this is some dark, bleak stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I like to think that, you know, and that's the kind of literature that interests me as well, yeah. you know. I mean, whether we're talking about weird fiction, uh, you know, or any of the other genres or whatever it, it is that we consider literary fiction, yeah. as as a reader, for, for me, a lot of that just has to do with nuance and complexity that that comes with with really thoughtful writing. Uh, of any kind. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, oh, we're way over, but uh, <laughs> to kind of to kind of wrap us up, I could keep talking for for hours um, about this. But um, what are you reading right now, and and what's kind of next for you? And and also, where can people find out more about your work and things that are happening with the journal and chapbook? Sure, sure. So right now, I've been reading a novel by Joyce Carol Oates, um, a wonderful writer who whose work I've I've really been delving deeply into now uh, called Carthage uh, about a girl who goes missing in the Anirondacks uh, in upstate New York and um, it, it's it, it's been 
It's been a, a fantastic and a very unusual read. She's really a master. Uh, one, one thing that I'd like to mention before, uh, before we close, yeah. uh, as weird as this is to say, I've got two records coming out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, LPs, both of which uh, are uh, pieces that I narrated. Cool. Um, and that were produced by uh, Cadabra Records, who has, over the past few years, has really done some phenomenal work at, at pairing horror literature with just incredible production values and uh, wonderful scores that go along with it uh, and, and beautiful artwork and packaging uh, I'm I'm happy to say that one of those actually has come out, um, um, my own 20 Simple Steps to Ventriloquism. And this month, as as of this interview, Thomas Ligotti's The Bungalow House, which happens to be uh, my favorite uh, short story, period, uh, is is coming out from them. And uh, I, I did the narration oh, for cool. that. And I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very pleased and excited about that. In terms of uh, getting in touch with me, uh, I have a website, uh, johnpaget.net. Uh, I'm also uh, on Facebook and, and Twitter, and uh, you can always reach me through uh, the Thomas Ligotti online site, yes. uh, which I created uh, now more than 20 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like old yeah. internet, old internet. Yeah, that's yeah, good. yeah. It, it doesn't look like it came from 1998. That's good. <laughs> not, not like the Space Jam website. Not, not, in, not yeah. anymore. <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but it's a, it's a real community now. You know, it's got well over 3,000 members and wow. uh, um, some, some great material there. But uh, I'm pretty easy to reach. Okay. Well, cool, John. Well, uh, this was uh, great speaking with you. Thank yeah, you so thanks much for so much. On. I really appreciate your time. That was author John Paget. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.